Okay, perhaps we shall begin. This evening what I want to do is to finish talking about Papancha. I won't spend too long talking about the third dimension of Papancha, but then want to move on to examine a little bit about the Brahmaviharas, some reflections on these four practices, which are also considered by the Buddha to be mindfulness practices, which is the practice of metta, which we've, what we've been doing through one session a day so far for the last four days, Karuna, which is compassion. Mudita, which is gentle or sympathetic joy. And finally, Upeka, which is equanimity. So I want to kind of look at those a little bit towards the end. However, to recap, Papancha. We've been looking at Papancha in regard to craving. So, Papancha, this obsessional mind, this mind which gets carried off into spirals of thinking, going out, you know, every time we sit down, close our eyes, there's Papancha, magic, just like that. Papancha is the train which we get caught on, Um, we don't know where we're going to end up with it. And craving and desire is part of that papancha, something we're endlessly engaged in. It's always something we want to kind of fill up the lack that often we feel inside, feel inside. This is very difficult to eliminate. This is considered to be one of the primary problems, the hindrances in terms of being a fetter as well, something which keeps us bound to certain types of existence and is extremely difficult to overcome. In fact, so difficult. There's a story in the Vinaya, which is the discipline of how the discipline arises for the monks and nuns, and there are, again, discourses and stories around how the Buddha basically constructed the rules by which the monks and nuns live by. And in this particular sutta, which is within the, um, the Vinaya, there's a case of um, some monks who cannot control their sexual urges. Um, they're caught up in sexual craving. So they decide to castrate themselves, which they duly do. The Buddha returns from one of his wanderings and comes back and finds that this has happened. And you can tell his personality from this because he's absolutely furious about it. And he says, I go away and I tell you to cut off one thing and you cut off something completely different. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the ending of craving is a very very important part of or dealing with craving is a very important part of dealing with the whole of papancha um, the monk's view is not the way to do it I don't think <laughs> Then we looked at self, and we spent the whole, well, not last night, but the night before, examining self. And this is what the Buddha has to say about self. And this is a quote from something called Sangyutanaka, which is actually the connected discourses. He who imagines is bound by Mara. Mara is death. It's like that which stultifies and kills life. It's the voice inside our own head. He who imagines is bound by Mara. He who does not imagine is freed from that evil one. I am. This is an imagining. I shall not be. This is an imagining. This I am. This is an imagining. I shall be. This is an imagining. I shall not be. This is an imagining. Embodied shall I be. Formless shall I be. I shall be conscious I shall be unconscious, neither conscious or unconscious shall I be. This imagining is a disease. It's, imagining is an abscess. It's a barb. I am is an agitation. I am is a palpitation. I am is a delirium. And I am is finally a massive conceit. Do you think he's got a problem with yourself? <laughs> So, the self is implicated. The self is implicated in craving, and the self is going to be implicated, particularly the sense of I am, in also the other form of papancha, 
which is views, which makes it sound very innocuous, and I'll come to that in a minute. Notice at the end of this particular passage, he says, I am is finally a mass of conceit. Well, conceit is also a problem in Buddhist psychology. It's something that we suffer from. Now, conceit is of three forms. Notice how they can break it down into a number of forms. There's three forms of conceit. There's the conceit of I am better than. And here's an interesting one. There's the conceit of I am worse than. And then there's the conceit of I am exactly the same as. (laughs) These are the three forms of conceit. I always tend to think of the second one a bit like that Monty Python sketch where everybody's trying to outdo each other on what a bad childhood they had. (laughs) I am is worse than. However, let's come to views. Now, views here is a strange translation. The word is ditti in in Pali. And ditti implies a kind of fixed opinion of something. It means an outlook on life. Literally, the way I look at the world is my view of the world. And views, of course, are something that people endlessly argue about and hold to very, very dogmatically. Um, Most of the world's problems are problems of clashing views and dogmas, um, which create warfare and violence and all the sorts of ills that we see in the world. And this is really how views are. They're held not lightly, but held extremely dogmatically. And we, again, a bit like self, because self is implicated, we circle around our views. In fact, we often create our identities out of the whole gamut of views which we hold. I mean, how many of us actually hold a view or an opinion about something and go something like this? Well, I hold this opinion, but I don't hold it too tightly, and I could possibly be persuaded otherwise, um, and it really isn't that important anyway. We don't do that, do we? <laughs> Our views we cling to quite, quite dogmatically. Um, certainly in academia, I know whole academic careers that have been found in dogmatic views, um, even when the kind of whole discourse has changed in many ways. So views become something to which we dogmatically cling. In a sense, they are the filter through which we view the world. However, these views are pernicious in the sense that some of them aren't even acknowledged as being views or opinions. For example, that there is permanence or certainty is a view or opinion about the world which finds no actual basis in reality yet we still hold to it, we still cling to it. So views are very much linked to delusion. They're very much linked to not how I find the world, but how I would like to find the world, how I think it is. And this is a massive cause of papancha. Notice also that views and opinions that we hold often come from our own history, the ones that we form through experience, but often come from things like media, often come from um, the conditioning of our parents. These are all conditioned phenomena which enter us and we think they are us. Views are us. That's a a new title of a shop. There you go. Um, We think these views and opinions are us, where in fact they're not. They're simply conditioned phenomena, things that have been conditioned by our history, by our parents, by our society, ways of viewing things. So we hold on to them rigidly, and the Buddha, in one particular passage, says, out of these views and opinions comes the resort to all kinds of weapons. He sees it as being that which is at the basis of most conflict and violence, Um, And I can't but agree with him in this sense that if we look deeply that the kind of violence that we often see around us, particularly societal violence, is often based on views and opinions which are being held. So we proliferate and we exaggerate and we view the world through these views without ever getting to the reality behind things. 
There is only right view according to the Buddha when we see clearly the four ennobling truths, that there is dukkha, there is a cause to dukkha, there's an end to dukkha, and there is a path that leads to the end of dukkha. That is the only correct view to hold. Actually, I think the Buddha has a problem with views in general. Um, I think that the only, view, the only good view is no view, actually. Because actually, as soon as we hold a view, that is the frame through which we view things. That is the lens through which we're seeing everything. The great Buddhist philosopher Nagarjuna, who's, who's working somewhere around the end of the first century and the second century, he actually, in one explicit piece, says, I have no views, I can't be refuted. <laughs> I hold no views at all. Um, actually, everybody else holds views. Everybody else is holding opinions. And his whole philosophy um, within Buddhist thought is devoted to deconstructing other people's opinions and views and showing, actually, by their own very logic, they unravel by the logic that they hold, not by introducing any kind of premises of his own into the argument whatsoever. But that's another story entirely. So, three forms of papancha. This is, in a sense, what we are really beginning to look at in meditation practice, in mindfulness practice. We begin to look at the craving and self and views. And actually, they are not three separate things because they are all interrelated. They all depend. We crave after certain things and hold certain views about them, and that basically instantiates the self, actually substantiates the self in this world. Uh, So all of these three dimensions are intimately woven together and bound together. And this is what we are, in a sense, beginning to deconstruct as we look at what is going on. In that simple question, what is going on, that I gave you almost as a mantra at the beginning of the week, you know, that's really the origin of your inquiry. What's going on here? You know, not by bringing a view or opinion to it, by opening to actually seeing what is arising and what is passing away, and what is arising and what is passing away. So these three things are intimately related and they are intimately connected to our meditational practice. This is what we're discovering often in Papancha. Okay, well I'm going to kind of put that to one side now, the notion of Papancha. Or wish I could. (laughs) Papancha's dealt with, yeah. And I'm going to move to talking about the Brahma-Vihara. Let me just say something about this term. It's a virtually untranslatable term, Brahma-Vihara. It doesn't really, really doesn't mean much in a Western context, but it meant everything in the Indian context in which, obviously, the Buddha was teaching. Brahma-Vihara literally means the dwelling places of Brahma, or Brahma-Viharas, if we're pluralizing it. It means dwelling places of Brahma. Brahma was the chief of the Hindu gods, or chief of the Brahmanical gods, which was what actually was around at the time of the Buddha. Uh, he was like the big figure. He was the big creator figure within this. And saying to a Hindu or a Brahmin in this period in which the Buddha was teaching that if you did certain things, you would dwell with Brahma, it really indicated liberation. It meant that you would be liberated. So actually the Buddha is giving us four practices, four mindful practices which are aimed at liberation. Friendliness, compassion, joy and equanimity. All of these are aimed at liberation, aimed at the awakening process. They are not so much places to be, as indicated by the term vihara, dwelling place, which is what this means in Pali, but they are ways of being in the world. And if we start with metta, which is where I'm obviously going to start, this is the fountainhead of it all, if we start with metta, metta is not so much a dwelling place, but a way of seeing the world. You see the world through the eye of friendliness or kindness, not wishing others harm. Even if you disagree with them, 
and don't like them. This has nothing to do with liking everybody in the world. Yeah, something which is almost an impossibility. When this gets translated often as it is, as loving kindness, then I think it becomes more of an uphill task because it's very difficult to love everybody in the world. <laughs> it's not difficult, though, to exhibit... Well, it is difficult practically, but it's not so difficult to exhibit a kind of boundless friendliness to everybody, including yourself. And this is very important. If you've seen with the practice, this is where we start. We are absolutely implicated in this. So much so that if we don't develop this fundamental sense of friendliness towards ourselves, it's very difficult to develop it towards others. If you like, the charity has to start at home. The charity has to start with you. In fact, the very opposite If we think of the opposite of that, if I'm pretty unkind to myself, the chances are I'm going to be pretty unkind to you. Now, I don't know what it's like in other European languages, but certainly in English, sometimes we make a virtue out of being unkind to others. And I've often heard this phrase. I don't know if any of you will recognize this kind of expression or phrase. I'm only being as hard on you as I am on myself. (laughs) You know... It means I'm beating myself up, so I'm going to give you a jolly good beating too. (laughs) You know, by the laughter, I reckon that people recognise that kind of expression and how often that unkindness is literally spread out among others because we have this fundamental sense of unkindness, lack of appreciation, lack of self-worth in ourselves. Often this is equated this kind of notion of having some degree of friendliness to ourselves as almost being a sense of arrogance. This is not. This is not in self-indulgence. This is not an arrogance. It's a fundamental facet of being in this world is to be friendly and kindly towards yourself. Not as some perfect being, because none of us are perfect beings. This is a friendliness that's friendly, is friendly within imperfection, you know, the imperfection that we are. And if we can hold our own imperfections in a friendly gaze, and I don't mean to be self-indulgent about that, change what we can change, but to hold it within a friendlier gaze, we are more likely to be able to do that with others. If we understand our own foibles, if we understand the own, our own wellsprings of our behaviour, And again, this is what occurs in meditative practice. We begin to see the stuff that's there when we lift the lid off the pressure cooker and we see all this stuff that comes rising up. Then perhaps we can be more attuned to the distress of others, attuned to the wellsprings of their behavior. And the Buddhist view is, in many senses, and the Buddhist view is that Human beings, even when they act badly, are acting primarily out of distress. And so when we ourselves act badly, if we examine for ourselves where that action arises from, an action of speech or an action of of body, then we often can trace it back to some deep sense of distress or dissatisfaction within ourselves. We can often look at that. It comes from a woundedness, a woundedness of being. And if we can appreciate and we can hold that woundedness of being in a friendliness, then perhaps, A, we mitigate the actions of of speech and the actions of body that we engage in, but also that we can start to hold the actions and the behaviour of others and also a little friendlier gaze than we hitherto engage in in our lives. Now I want you to read you the Metta Sutta, because the Metta, or the Karanya Metta Sutta, is the locus for the whole of the Metta practice. And it's not too long. This is actually recited, by the way, in Sri Lanka, a bit like the Lord's Prayer used to be recited in schools in the West, in Christian schools in the West. And you see little Sri Lankan children reciting this in the morning. 
um, at their kind of opening assembly in the morning when they all gather together. He who is skilled in welfare, who wishes to attain the calm state nibbana, should act thus. He should be able, upright, perfectly upright, of noble speech, gentle and humble. Contented, easily supported, with few duties of light livelihood, with senses calmed, discreet, not impudent, not greedily attached to family. He should not pursue the slightest thing for which otherwise men might censure him. May all beings be happy and secure, may their hearts be wholesome. Whatever living being there be, feeble or strong, tall, stout or medium, short, small or large, without exception, seen or unseen, those dwelling far or near, those who are born or those who are about to be born, may they all be happy. Let none deceive another, nor despise any person whatsoever in any place. Let him not wish harm to another out of anger or ill will. Just as a mother would protect her only child at the risk of her own life, even so let him cultivate a boundless heart towards all beings. Let his thoughts of boundless love and friendliness pervade the whole world, above and below and across, without any obstruction, without any hatred and without any enmity. Whether he stands, walks, sits or lies down, as long as he is awake, he should develop this mindfulness here. This, they say, is the best way of living in this world. Not falling into wrong views, being virtuous, endowed with insight, by discarding attachment to sense desire. Never again is such a one reborn. Well, I think it gives you a very, um, it gives you a very round picture of what the Buddha means by boundless friendliness. The translator in this one he uses love. I much prefer this root um, word friendliness. This is an attitude of heart and mind. There's this peculiarity in. Um, I think the English language is that we associate mind simply with this. In Pali and Sanskrit, for example, the word chitta, which is the word which is usually translated as mind, also means heart as well. In fact, in Thai, when you use the word chitta, and which you're actually seemingly referring to the mind, they're always referring to it as the heart. I had so many teachers in my past, and particularly in Tibetan communities in South India, who used to say, the trouble with Westerners is they are always thinking with this. <laughs> They're never thinking with this, never thinking with the heart. So what we're talking about in the development of metta is development and the capacity to open our hearts in friendliness towards others, to let other beings in, yeah? to let ourselves into our own lives. With all of the problems that we have. This is, as I said earlier on, this is nothing about being perfect. This is about accepting who and what we are at this moment. The only starting place you have is how you are now. We can all desire to want to be otherwise and have expectations about that. But the only place we can start from is where we are. And strangely enough, this is where transformation starts, by the acceptance of where we are, who we are at this moment in time. Transformation doesn't come about by trying to project ourselves into a future. The transformation starts the moment you begin to accept yourself in friendliness, in metta, holding yourself in metta. Now, the word, and this is the reason, I might as well give you the rationale behind it, <clears throat> the word metta is actually related in Pali and Sanskrit to the word mitta. Mitta or mitra, some of you might be familiar with the Sanskrit. Mitta or mitra in these languages means a friend. It's the same root. Interestingly enough, the actual root means to grow fat. <laughs> 
Yeah? It literally means to swell up with friendliness. <laughs> and it also means to spread out as well. So this is kind of this burgeoning sense of growing big with friendliness and spreading out in this world. I think it's a very nice connotation of this. So metta is this emotion of radiant, expansive friendliness towards everything that lives, towards everything that lives. Not just other human beings, but other beings in general. As you heard from the metta sutta, it's that holding in reverence other beings, even if you don't like the look of them. even if they are frightening, to still hold them in this reverence and friendliness. So it's this expansive friendliness for everything that lives. Now, the Buddha basically teaches two ways of attaining human excellence. That's what I really think of the awakening experience as, is the attainment of human excellence. This is what the statue of the Buddha, which only occurred 500 years, these production of these things, only occurred 500 years after his death. But these statues were meant, in a sense, to represent the human excellence that was the Buddha with all of those marks of excellence on the body of him. So there were two methods for establishing or gaining this awakened state, this hum- the excellent human state. One is satipatthana. Four ways of founding mindfulness. Exactly what we've been doing over these, you know, over the past week. Establishing oneself in mindfulness. The other for attaining human excellence was metabhavana, the cultivation of boundless friendliness. These are the two methods: cultivating boundless friendliness. Metabhavana directly activates the heart to open up to others in this boundless friendliness. And also it activates and is the root and the soil, I should perhaps say the soil, out of which compassion grows. Literally, if we don't have the friendliness and we try to develop the compassion, the compassion is not rooted in anything. It's like one of those plants that you just stick in water and it doesn't really grow properly because it's got nothing to root into. And so the friendliness itself is, if you like, your rooting compost. <laughs> you know, with all of, and I use that word deliberately, compost, because it's with deliberately all of its impurities in there as well. All of the crap that's there that it can root into and grow from out of it. So the compassion has to be rooted here. Now the final outcome, interestingly enough, of Satipatthana, the four ways of developing mindfulness, the four ways of cultivating mindfulness, is metta bhavana, is friendliness, is the cultivation of friendliness. The end result of the cultivation of friendliness is Satipatthana, the four ways of establishing mindfulness. They are not two separate things. They are just two different approaches to the same thing. Right mindfulness is boundless friendliness, and boundless friendliness is right mindfulness. And here we have this equation between the two, that they are not separate. We cannot divide them. In fact, without the friendliness that's developed through the metta practice, the practice of satipatthana in its initial stages can be very cold. Hence the reason why, as we've gone through the practice in the week, I've emphasized, probably to boring you to tears with it, but I kept emphasizing being friendly, being kind, treating your minds kindly, bringing them back in a kindly way, to the object that we're focusing on, whether it's the breath or the body or whatever it might be. So we do this with great kindness, with great friendliness. We are not brutalizing the mind. We are treating it with respect. We're treating ourselves with respect. So this is what's important. 
So for the Buddha, maintaining oneself in right mindfulness is the same as suffusing the world with universal friendliness. This is what it's about. So mindfulness isn't this cold, dispassionate, just-watching stuff. It's partly that, but it's not just that. In something known as the Abhidhamma, which is really the treatises on Buddhist psychology, in the Abhidhamma it said that when a moment of sati arises, then all of the other wholesome mental factors, of which sati is only one, it's always a wholesome mental factor, all of the other wholesome mental factors arise, which includes metta, which includes karuna, compassion, which includes equanimity, which is also includes this appreciative joy or this gentle joy. All of these arise together. So sometimes I think we have a very, very pared-down notion of what it means to be mindful in this world, that the mindfulness is somehow just watching, just watching. Just watching won't take you very far. Now, just to say a little bit more about mindfulness before moving on to compassion, because we are going to run out of time otherwise. The mindfulness, the metta which we engage in, is a kind of inclining of the mind in a particular direction. Constantly inclining the mind. Now, we've been doing it for four days, that's all. I've taught whole retreats which have just been devoted to metta. In fact, quite a number of years we've done three-week and month retreats just on metta here. Just doing this practice and karuna, just those two practices, that's all. Um, but at the end of week, 10 days, you sometimes get people come to you and say, I've been doing this for week, 10 days, and I still don't feel friendly. <laughs> Almost that's beside the point. You know, the point is, is keep on inclining the mind. Keep on, in a way, engaging in this behavioral of experiment of inclining the mind, inclining the mind. Now, in one telling passage in the suttas, the Buddha says... You know, what, the way that we incline the mind becomes the shape of our lives. Yeah. So if we incline the mind to habitual patterns which include greed, aversion and delusion, no wonder we get the lives that we do. It becomes literally the shape of our lives, the form that our lives take in our ordinary, <coughs> everyday activities. However, and this is why it isn't easy in the initial stages, if we keep on inclining the mind to metta, perhaps we'll eventually get it. Perhaps we'll eventually somehow get that. Now, metta here doesn't mean this kind of soppy, droopy, lovey thing (laughs) at all. It's not that. It just means the ability, for example, to be a little more friendly to that person who you come across, you might work with or might be a relation, who you find extremely irritating. Yeah? That's the real bottom line of it. It's the ability perhaps just to listen with a bit more friendliness rather than dismissiveness. The ability to open to that person in a, in a kind of warmer way than I don't want anything to do with this person at all. You know, so we're opening and really, in a sense, opening our hearts to that other person to let them in a little bit. This is really the fruits of metta, when we can begin to do this, when we can begin to open to others who we find extremely difficult. I might say, as a kind of caveat to this, it works. If you do it, it works. (laughs) Now, that's a kind of... Um, hopefully giving you impetus to try and do it because metta is important work to do. I think it's sorely needed in the present world. So a person who has right mindfulness is also a compassionate being. This is the other thing. If you have rightful mindfulness, compassion comes in as well. Now, the word that's used in the texts 
for compassion is an interesting word. It's, sometimes it's karuna, but actually when I look through the Pali texts, this word is actually used quite infrequently, but it's the most commonly used word I see in, say, popular books on Buddhism. The word that the Buddha generally uses, which I think is far more interesting in some ways than karuna, is another word, which is anukampa. This is the word he uses for compassion, anukampa. It has two very literal meanings, I think, which are very indicative of what the state of compassion is. The first is a trembling along with. That's the first meaning of it. And the second one, I think I even prefer even more, it's to cry out at the crying out of another. It's literally to be in that empathetic relationship of feeling another's pain, deeply empathizing with that person's pain, to cry out at the crying out of another. Just going back to metta a second, before we move on to compassion. Metta is not the same as romantic love, and this is the reason why I think we should view it as friendliness. It's not, um, it's not even kind of the thing that's used in the Christian church, the idea of agape. It's not that either, of a kind of disinterested love of God. Metta is this boundless feeling of friendliness that arises when consciousness of self and other starts to be eroded. So you see, metta works on the self as well. It works on eroding that. What we see in metta and have direct experience of is the stream of life in this sense of being friendly. We have this view into the stream of life, this endless ebb and flow, a marvellous kind of sense of interdependencies, moving and flowing through the world. This is what we have an insight into. Now, really to have deep insight into that, and this is going back to the compassion, is to have this experience of Anukampa, resonating along with something, trembling along with crying out at the crying out of another. We see this. It's not feeling, but feeling with. This is what we're learning to do in compassion. So, out of this soil of metta grows this wonderful bloom of compassion, this feeling along with others. And this feeling along with others is to feel others' pain is to really experience the sorrows of the world, the pain of others, our own pains as well. And compassion here is extended equally to ourselves, just like metta, as just like the expression of metta towards ourselves, compassion is done in exactly the same way. This is, which, this is what holds our pains and our distress in an eye which is friendly, and engaged with those pains and distresses, but also engaged with the pains and distresses of others. A great 7th century Buddhist writer called Shantideva actually wrote, he says, it makes no sense to talk about my pain and your pain. It only makes sense to talk about pain, because this is a shared experience. Now, the pain might be different, and obviously will be. Your pain is not literally my pain. But, in some senses, there is this sharing of this state of dukkha, this state of distress that we all have. So, the first two of the Brahma-Viharas, and I'm, in a sense, kind of going through these quite quickly because of the time limitations... Compassion is also something that we do. It's not something that we just feel. It's actually derived, again, I know I keep probably boring you with bits of Pali and Sanskrit, but in, in Pali, the word, the root of this word is the same as the root of the word kriya. Now, some of you might know something called kriya yoga. Now, kriya means to do something, to act. This is what it means. So, karuna itself, if we're using that word as opposed to anukampa, if we're using this word for compassion, means to act 
in a particular way. It also means to turn outwards and to literally, visibly see the pain of others. A lot of the time there can be so much self-obsession and so much, so much of us being turned inwards that we don't see that others are in pain as well. We don't see, in fact, in fact the pain that our pain causes others. Yeah? We don't see that. Often within families, we don't, we're not aware of the distress that we're causing others in, in our lives and the way that we are in this world. So literally, we turn outwards. And that moment of turning outwards and seeing another's pain is the moment when, if you like, there is compassion. Now, in a sense, there is a doing something about it. Yeah? Not that we can heal the ills of the world simply by being aware of them, but in many cases we do something about it. We actually engage in actions which help to relieve the pain of others. This is the path, for those of you who know the distinction between non-Mahayana Buddhism and Mahayana Buddhism. Mahayana Buddhism is later development, made that virtually its sole focus with a sense of dealing and helping with others' pain. This was the, the vehicle of the Bodhisattva, the vehicle of the person who was going to, in some senses, take endless rebirths in order to help others. Now, there's both a literal and a metaphorical way of viewing that, and I'll kind of leave that in suspension at the moment. But there is this idea of endlessly committing oneself to helping others in compassion, in the state of compassion. So karuna is also an outgoing kindliness. It's not just compassion in the sense of the word, I think it's often used in other religious traditions, it's this outgoing kindliness. Metta sensitizes us. Metta makes us human. Metta grounds us in much more human qualities of of the development of friendliness um, and makes us, in a sense, available for human suffering for human pain. So these first two elements, the friendliness, the compassion, the outgoing kindliness, are often devoted to the pains of the world. The Buddha is a very practical thinker, as I think I've said before. And this practicality is expressed in the sense of the karuna is this engaged, active tenderness and concern for others, including ourselves, particularly for their suffering, particularly for their pain. So if karuna opens us up in some senses to the pain of the world, and I know to many people sometimes Buddhist practice and thought often seems negative fixated, fixated on negative dimensions of life. We talk a lot about dukkha, we talk a lot about the ills, and the diagnosis that we need to make of the world. You've heard me talk about compassion directed towards the sorrows, the distress, the pain of others. Well, the good news is the next is devoted to joy. Mudita is the joy. This world, as one of the um, phrases for developing of mudita is um, expressed, this world is a mixture of pain and sorrow. Pain, sorrow, and joy. That is how the world is mixed. For most of us, luckily, it's not unalloyed pain. There is also joy there as well. So this is a gentle joy. It's a very difficult word, mudita, to actually translate. It's often translated as sympathetic joy, um, which I think can sound a little bit patronizing at times. I actually think this is one of the most difficult ones of the Brahma-viharas to develop, this notion of this kind of gentle, appreciative joy, because it's the joy in others' joy. It's this mental rejoicing in the good fortune of others. Um, And I think that's quite a difficult quality to develop. You you can hear it in the expression like this, can't you? I'm really glad you've won the lottery. (laughs) (laughs) So often we don't um, 
we, our hearts don't go out in joy towards others. <laughs> um, actually, the word itself also um, is, it means a soft-heartedness, a tenderness, um, a gentleness, and it's suffusing your thoughts of others in their joys, in their good fortune, with this tenderness, this joyfulness, this, um, this concern and bliss as well in their joy. I think, although this isn't traditional, and this is somehow the way I teach it often when I'm actually running retreats on this, is actually we need to develop it for ourselves as well. We need to appreciate what good fortune there is also in our lives and rejoice in it. There's a form of Japanese Buddhism, and I don't subscribe to most of its doctrines, uh, called Shin Buddhism. It's a particular late development of Japanese Buddhism. But in Shin Buddhism, the sole practice, the sole major practice, is gratitude. Actually having gratitude. They go to the temple each day and you know, basically give thanks for the good fortune albeit very minimal, that might be in their lives. This is the opposite often of often, often the way we are in the world, isn't it? Which is actually bemoaning what we haven't got. You know, unhappy at what hasn't come to us. You know, so this, I think, is also a sense of this sense of gratitude is also mixed with this. I'm grateful that you also have experienced joy and good fortune in your life. But also I can experience the joy and good fortune in my life, no matter how minimal that might be. And this, as I say, is a perfect antidote to the kind of activities that we normally engage in, which is, of course, basically bewailing the fact that we haven't had certain things happen for us in the way that we wanted them to happen for us. Okay, well, this is very swift, unfortunately, but uh, the final of the Brahma Viharas, the final thing which takes us into um, this dwelling with Brahma, this liberation that the Buddha speaks of, is the development of equanimity. Now, let's get this very clear that equanimity is not disinterestedness. Equanimity is balance and poise and engagement in this world. This is the equanimous mind. The mind isn't just being thrown off balance by what is happening, by the good fortune and trying to cling to that and the bad fortune and trying to brush that away. It's a poised, balanced engagement. There's another word which is actually used in the text called tatramajatata, which actually means literally in the middleness. And this means this sitting in the middle but also in the middle of life, in the midst of life. Equanimity is often equated with a word I really dislike and apply to Buddhist practice, which is detachment. Now you hear, and in many ways, although I haven't said the word many times, what is implied by Buddhist practice and what I've been implying is actually that attachment, clinging and grasping, is not a good thing. This leads to further dukkha. If you remember from one of the talks I gave a couple of nights ago, I said, actually, if you want to stoke your fires of greed, aversion, and delusion, cling, be attached. Now, because of the way our languages work, you know, synonyms and antonyms and all the rest of it, well, the automatic thing is to think, well, if I'm not attached, the automatic thing I must be in English is detached. <laughs> yeah. Detached always has a rather cold ring for me to it. I don't know if it does for other people here listening. Of kind of sitting on the peripheries of life. I'm detached. It's almost like the hermit in the cave. You know, the hermit in the cave is detached. He's probably a sociopath, actually. He <laughs> you know, just can't get on with others. It's all very well having you know, kind of karuna and metta sitting in a cave. <laughs> Isn't it? when you don't have to deal with the messy business of people. <laughs> um, in Sri Lanka, actually, when I was living in Sri Lanka, one of the teachers, in fact, I mentioned the other night, um, who's no longer alive, unfortunately, um, but he used to run a meditation centre just outside of Kandy. 
And he used to call in meditators. He used to have very long-term meditators there. And he used to call them in every so often for an interview to find out how they were going on, similar to what we've been doing here. Um, but he used to say things to them like, um, how's the meditation going? And they'd be going something like, oh, yes, I'm really starting to get into the meta practice. I'm feeling much more friendly, much more kindly, and so much calmer. And he said, right, go down to Candy. <laughs> now, Candy is a typical Asian town, which is chaos. <laughs> and he says, if you still have it down there, you're getting somewhere. <laughs> you know, the whole implication is there. Yeah, so this is not something we develop in detachment from the rest of life. Actually, the equanimity that the Buddha speaks of is, is actually engagement, a correct engagement with life. We we're not simply being buffeted by the different winds, by the different vicissitudes that come upon us, but that we're actively poised and balanced and acting in our lives. A danger with equanimity is, and this is again the result of it being confused sometimes with detachment, is it gets very close to indifference. I'm indifferent to the way things are. Again, if we think of indifference, then again I'm not really actively engaged with it. I'm not actively involved with it. To point out this fact in Pali, the word for indifference is exactly the same as equanimity. So upeka is indifference as well as being equanimity. It's what's called the near enemy of equanimity is indifferent. When you think you're equanimous, sometimes you just couldn't care less. (laughs) So we're making that move from not caring because actually the Equanimity that we develop is rooted in the joy, caring for others, caring for their joys, appreciating, um, resonating with the joys of others and our own, if I'm extending it in this way, rooted in also their sorrows and the sorrows of the world. In one of the great prayers in Mahayana Buddhism is you know, to heal the sorrows of the world, I take upon myself the sorrows of the world. You know, this is one of the prayers that are often said in you know, the compassion that Shantideva speaks about. This is particularly Shantideva. And finally, of course, all of this, this whole growth of the bloom of compassion, the tree of equanimity, Remember this image I gave you a few nights ago, the tree of equanimity, the cool shade of the tree of equanimity, the tears of joy watering the bloom of compassion, but all rooted in the soil of metta. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.